Welcome to TAF Radio's Buzz Politics, a podcast covering exciting topics in local, national, and international politics in a fair and balanced way. I'm your host today, Rena Shao. In today's episode, we will be discussing the historical background behind the Russia-Ukraine war. As of April 15, 2022, the war has lasted 51 days and has led to substantial destruction. It has dominated headlines around the world. But before February 24, 2002, few people were paying attention to what was going on in Ukraine. However, there were some people who were not surprised by the conflict. They had noticed tension building up in the preceding month, and some of them even predicted that war would break out. Stan Shunpike, our guest for this episode, is an independent foreign relations analyst who predicted the invasion three days before it occurred. Welcome to our show, Mr. Shunpike. Thanks for having me up. With this war happening currently in Europe, I think we should reflect how the breakup of the Soviet Union affects Russia today. Could you tell us a little bit of the history of Russia over the past few decades? Yeah, it's a good place to start. I think the breakup of the Soviet Union is really, you know, a pivotal moment. Uh, Vladimir Putin called it, you know, one of the greatest geopolitical disasters of the 20th century. So that's what he thought of it. And I think from the Russian perspective, I think it's very easy to understand. In the 90s, there were uh, there was a massive economic crisis. What happened here was that the Soviet Union was an ideological system that failed to reproduce itself. So people stopped believing it and they tried to open the doors to reform and the reform got out of control. So one by one, the various Soviet republics uh, seceded and became their own countries again, Poland and Ukraine and so on. And then Boris Yeltsin came to power in Russia. And there's this really famous moment, you can look up pictures online, where Boris Yeltsin is climbing on a tank to give a speech. And he says, the Russian communists were trying to control the country. There were The hardliners were trying to take back control. And Yeltsin climbs on this tank and says, basically, you know, I'm going to stand on this tank and you can shoot me or not. And so they don't shoot him. And so the communists sort of fall from power because they're unwilling to, you know, ultimately use violence against their own people, which, you know, is great. But then two years later, there's another constitutional crisis because Yeltsin is firing a bunch of people and he does use tanks against uh, the parliament building, which is part of the story that I think a lot of people don't know. So uh, Russia basically got rid of communism, but then they realized that after they got rid of communism, there were still lots of unanswered questions. They needed to change their economy a lot from the old system. And I think uh, there was a lot of Western advice on what to do. Now, uh, according to Western economists, Russia just didn't follow the advice well enough. According to some Russian nationalists, they followed the advice too well. But regardless, what happened in the 90s economically to Russia was like an unmitigated disaster. So you can look at birth rates totally collapsed. The population dropped significantly. I think there was something on the order of 5 million excess death compared to what would have been expected before the fall of the Soviet Union. So from Russia's perspective, uh, the 90s were a big disaster. So I think this is what really has shaped like Vladimir Putin's thinking along these lines and a lot of other Russians as well. And so when Putin comes to power, the economy starts recovering. And this isn't necessarily entirely due to Putin. It has to do with stuff like the price of oil and blah, 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 blah. But uh, Putin is definitely given a lot of credit for it. 
And I think the lesson that Putin and a lot of Russian people took from this was that they didn't like the feeling of their country being weak and directionless and aimless. And it was an unsettled and a disturbing time. And Putin was able to consolidate power and give the country direction again. And, and that stability was welcome. Another thing that is significant here is that with a lot of the market reforms in the 90s, the sort of practical effect of this was that Russia was dominated by a lot of oligarchs. And part of what Putin did that was significant in the early 2000s was he managed to rein in the oligarchs. And so in practice, of course, this means that Putin gathered more and more power for himself by eliminating these oligarchs or by sort of restricting their ability to influence the political sphere. But it, it made him more popular, at least, to rein in rival sources of power and the, the oligarchs who were sort of grabbing up everything that was cheap after the fall of communism were not popular. So, so Putin managed to sort of secure his base of power as a, a politician who was restoring some of Russia's previous losses and economically sort of pushing away dangerous outside forces. Mm-hmm. And how do you think that the history of Russia affected how presently they see other neighboring countries that were once part of the Soviet Union? Yeah, so I think it's uh, pretty natural for a lot of Russians to, you know, look back fondly at a, at a time when they had more territory and more peoples were part of Russia, you know, so uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Poland, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, all, all these countries used to be part of the Soviet Union. And so uh, I think definitely there's some nostalgia for that era. I think, of course, whether or not you regard this nostalgia as you know justified is a totally separate question. And I think a lot of rhetoric sort of hinges on where people take the history back to. Something Vladimir Putin said that was memorable in the speech he gave shortly before the war started was he said something about the history of Ukraine and how we will show Ukraine what real decommunization looks like. So what he meant there was that, uh, first of all, Ukraine had passed a series of laws that were walking back some of the communist history. And this meant taking down some of the monuments to World War II and so on, because they wanted to reassert a Ukrainian national identity. And they felt that the monuments to the Soviet era were you know, too pro-Russian. And so when Putin said, we're going to show you what decommunization looks like, he was partly pushing back against that. But he was also saying that he wanted to redraw the map of Ukraine because the current borders of Ukraine were kind of put in place during the Soviet Union. And so he said, if you want to get rid of the Soviet Union, then we can get rid of your borders too. So it was uh, kind of a dramatic line. But I think you see there are a couple lenses to look at like where these borders should be and sort of where you draw the history back to is where you look at as the correct and default position. So there's the lens of old school imperialism from like the 1700s, 1800s, which sees the world divided up into great powers and each great power has its sphere of influence. So in this lens, Ukraine is firmly in Russia's historical sphere of influence. Uh, Russia has, you know, a lot of the big cities in, in Ukraine, Kiev and Kharkov, were at one point a part of Russia. Uh, and so they feel that, you know, historically, this is part of their sphere of influence and that it, if it's shifting out of the sphere of influence, that's a disappointment to them. Then another lens is the lens of nationalism. And this was the lens, you know, where every people should get the right to self-determination. So, you know, Woodrow Wilson made a big deal of this around World War I. It sort of spread across Europe. And so a lot of little countries, Croatia and Albania and so on, didn't used to be countries at all 
asserted their right to self-determination and sort of broke off from various empires. And so the Ukrainian national identity likewise sort of uh, develops and forms around this time in the, in the 19th century. But the third way to look at this conflict and to look at uh, this history is through the lens of the, the modern system, which is that if you just sort of look at all the, all the lines on the map as if they were drawn yesterday, and if you look at sort of the way the world looks works right now and you assume that it's great, then anyone who is messing with the borders is disrupting the current order. And the right thing to do is obviously just like to let things be and let things continue the way they're going. Of course, peace is a good thing and there's a lot to be said for this, but I think this is sort of the default US position is to say the current, current lines are good and why would you want to change them? And I think from a US perspective, it can be hard to understand why anyone would want uh, to disrupt the current existing order. And what I would say to that is I think it's important to understand that people who do not live in the United States and look at history through different lenses might have a different feeling about how stable the existing order is or how well it's working for them. And so I think in terms of the challenge to the idea that the existing order is stable and fine, I believe a lot of Russians identify with that and a lot of Americans dismiss it. And I think it's important to understand. Mm -hmm. And I also think that this idea of keeping the boundaries also links to the certain background of tension between Russia and NATO over the last 30 years since NATO was created as a European alliance to um, to confine the Soviet Union's power of expanding um, in Absolutely. the European sphere. So can you tell us a little bit about that relationship, the tension between Russia and NATO and its role in the current conflict? So th there's a really important meeting that happened around uh, 1990 during the break of the Soviet Union where uh, East and West Germany are about to reunite. And there's a lot of stuff to figure out if they reunite, but one of, the, one of the issues on the table is whether or not East Germany will be part of NATO. And the Soviet Union really doesn't want this to happen, but they sit down with the Secretary of State, uh, James Baker, from the United States. And James Baker says, if you sit back and let East Germany join NATO and accept this and approve the, reuni the reunification of Germany, then we promise that the NATO will not expand an inch to the east of Germany. And then a couple of years later, we brought in Poland and Czech Republic and so on. And then in 2004, we brought in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, which are right on Russia's borders. So uh, Russia didn't appreciate that. Now, I think the current US line on this issue is that, well, the Russians never got it in writing. And also that was a deal made with the Soviet Union, which doesn't exist anymore, so it's fine. And, you know, well, the, the line that always comes to mind when this sort of stuff is discussed is a line from Thucydides, which is the strong do what they can and the weak do what they must. And so in the 90s, Russia was weak and then and NATO was strong and NATO expanded. An another episode here that I think is in, sort of illustrative is that in 1999, NATO bombed Yugoslavia in an effort to uh, stop what was going on in Kosovo at the time. There was a... a ethnic cleansing and, and fighting there. And R Russia considered that the Baltics be part of its historic sphere of influence and found NATO action here to be kind of an assertion of a unilateral world that they did not appreciate. 
So when the NATO bombing started, the Russian foreign minister at the time was on a plane going to the United States and he turned the plane around because he said, like, we are drawing a line here. This is unacceptable to us. We want something different to happen. And so this was still in the Boris Yeltsin years, but then with the, you know, as Putin came to power, I think Russia sort of looked at the expansion of NATO and regarded this as a unfortunate historical thing that had happened and sort of wanted to work against that to push back. And so they developed their military more. And then in 2008, there was a war in Georgia. Um, before we get to the, you know, the stuff that happened, started happening in Ukraine in 2014. And sort of each, each of these incidences can be understood as a pattern where Russia looks for opportunities to assert itself on its borders to say that like the countries on its borders sort of need to remember to respect Russia. At, at some point in the early 2000s, the US added Georgia and Ukraine to the list of countries that could, could be considered to join NATO. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these are the countries that later you know, were involved in military conflicts with Russia. Um, another point that I think is just worth mentioning here quickly is that uh, there are several instances during the back and forth between NATO and Russia when Russia brought up the idea of joining NATO itself um, so in the initial discussions back in you know, 1990, I think even the Soviets said, well, if, uh, if, if we're getting back together with the West and if things are, and if, you know, we're dealing with deflating these tensions and if, uh, NATO was not an alliance aimed at Russia anymore, then why can't we join NATO? And NATO didn't take them up on this offer. And then again, I think shortly after 9-11, uh, Vladimir Putin was calling then President George W. Bush to say, you know, we're sorry that this happened and how can we help? And one of the things that Russia, that Putin's put forward is, hey, we're happy to join NATO and cooperate with you in any way. Now, uh, it's hard to know how serious Russia was in these offers or how aggressively they pursued this, um, but certainly uh, it didn't go anywhere. So I think Russia has, you know, some reason to believe over the last 30 years that NATO is expanding in its direction and is not entirely friendly to it. And as you mentioned that in history, leaders of nations have sometimes made a distinctive impact on their country's foreign policy. Rather, it's a decline to enter a union, or is it a decline to enter war? So how does Vladimir's Putin attitude towards NATO, the EU, and Ukraine developed and changed over the years he has been in power? I want to push back just a tiny bit here because I think I think some people, or I just want to say that I think some people are quick to sort of overly psychologize Vladimir Putin and try to try to guess what he's thinking. And I do think history is a mix of individuals making decisions and also these big institutions. So I think I think Putin is partly an expression of Russian nationalism and certain strains within the Russian government that kind of are on the same side he is and pushing in the same direction. But uh, it is true that Vladimir Putin personally has a lot of power. And I think, and we can at least make guesses. So uh, I know that in the Western media, shortly before the war, there was a lot of conversation about how Putin was sitting very far away from other of the Russian leaders and how he had been very paranoid about COVID. And so maybe this was affecting his mental state. And I don't want to make those sorts of guesses. But what we do know about Putin is that he grew up in the Soviet Union and he was an intelligence officer. And then he 
made its way through the turbulent 90s as the Soviet Union fell apart and as uh, the Russian economy cr cratered and as Russia went through various constitutions, and there were these constitutional crises with, you know, uh, with Yeltsin gathering more executive power for himself and shooting tanks at the parliament building and Yeltsin becoming unpopular and losing his grip on power. And I think from that decade, Putin learned some lessons about uh, wanting Russia to be strong and wanting his own grip on power to be strong. I, I think it would be reasonable to look at the fall of the Soviet Union and the decline of Boris Yeltsin as two examples of a lesson that uh, if the people do not feel that the government is going to last and that the government has a secure grip on power, then things can fall apart quickly. And I think Vladimir Putin strongly does not want things to fall apart and he wants uh, to strengthen Russia and to keep his own grip on power firm. So I think he looks at a lot of things like the expansion of NATO and the expansion of e the EU as things that happened uh, when Russia was too weak to do anything about them. And he feels that he needs to prove now that Russia is no longer too weak to do anything about them. With the events of Maiden in 2014, there was a significant change in the Ukrainian government. Can you tell us what happened then and its relevance to this war? Yes. So, yeah, 2014 is really where is, is really a pivotal moment. Uh, so I, I, I've, I've mentioned that, that Putin and a lot of the Russian establishment feel that NATO's expansion is uncomfortable and that they feel that Russia has been made weaker than it was historically and they want to address this. Uh, what I have not addressed is to what degree they've actually been successful. And I think it's sort of it's difficult to measure, but I think what's been going on in Ukraine is not a great sign from the Russian perspective. So uh, in 2014, the then president of Ukraine was considering a deal from the EU that would have more closely uh, intertwined Ukraine and the EU economically and would have led to Ukraine being less uh, intertwined with Russia. And so the Ukrainian parliament supported this measure, but the president ended up uh, refusing it and instead saying that they would take the country on a path closer to Russia. And th this led to massive protests and there was some violence. And eventually the president was forced out of office and fled the country and a new government was formed. Now, uh, some of what happened here is a little bit murky. And if you read Russian sources, they have a very different theories on how this all played out than if you look at Western sources. Uh, certainly people were, were killed while they were protesting in the central square in Maiden. And uh, the result of these people being killed led to greater up uprest and upheaval and eventually the, the uh, overthrow of the government or the, you know, the president deciding that it was time for him to pack his bags at least. And uh, given how this played out, it did not go well for the more pro-Russian president at all. And so some Russian sources believe that, you know, these snipers were part of a uh, Western plot and so on. Um, if you feel like digging, you can find plenty of people on the internet who have done all sorts of analysis of video and ballistics and can tell you what they think. Um, but in retrospect, the way it played out meant that Ukraine was shifting out of the Russian sphere of influence and moving more towards the EU. Um, one thing that is not at all in the realm of conspiracy that we know 
is that there is a leaked telephone conversation that occurred around this time between Victoria Newland, who was, I think, at the time, then like an undersecretary of state, uh, and another one of her co-workers who was also up there in the United States government, about the events in Ukraine. And they were discussing who should be president in Ukraine after the uh, existing president left, uh, sort of throwing names around and sort of picking a name and then sort of discussing pros and cons. And they settled on a name. Uh, and this was the person who ended up becoming the president to a Russian observer who was predisposed to suspect Western interference. The fact that U.S. diplomats were discussing who should be the Ukrainian president after the, the current president was removed, and then this person who they named did in fact become president, does look like some signs of Western interference. I mean, I, I don't think the West makes any secret about the fact that they have opinions on how Ukraine should be governed, and they have opinions about you know things, issues like corruption in Ukraine and on who would be the best person to address it. Anyways, really here, Russia decided that, that things that had happened were a bridge too far, and they immediately seized Crimea. A bunch of you know Russian soldiers showed up in Crimea, and uh, I think they sort of walked over to some barracks and said, if you're a Ukrainian soldier, you can also join the Russian army. And I don't know if, I think hardly any shots were fired, but... You know, they rapidly secured, like sort of cut off Crimea for the rest of Ukraine and held a referendum, which immediately declared that everyone in Crimea wanted to be in Russia now. And simultaneously, the fighting broke out in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region, which has been continuing to this day. The, basically, at that point, Donetsk and Luhansk, which are these two regions in eastern Ukraine, claimed that they were separating themselves from, from Ukraine as separatist regions pro-Russia, and fighting broke out. Uh, the Ukrainian government was trying to put down the separatists, and at some point, the Ukrainian government was winning, and the Russian army, I believe the official language was Russian volunteers from the army who sort of were going in independent capacity, but plenty of evidence that it was more organized than that, moved in and kind of achieved a stalemate. So within a, within a couple of months, of, so I, I think maybe, maybe a year of what happened in 2014, a stalemate had broken out and there's been a sort of low grade exchange of artillery fire and so on since 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. How much difference has Zelensky as a president of Ukraine made in the situation and has his present made war more or less likely in your opinion? Zelensky was elected in 2019 and Zelensky is an interesting political figure because, uh, well, he was a comedian before he ran for office, and uh, you know he he in fact played a president on TV, and then became elected as the president. A lot of people weren't sure what to make of him. You could read articles from 2019, 2020 of people saying, you know, does this guy have what it takes? Um, he did run on a platform of wanting peace, uh, wanting to settle things once and for all, and kind of uh, get a more lasting peace with Russia on the issue of the eastern separatist regions of the Donbass. I don't know if he was ever very firm and clear about what concessions he was willing to make for peace, but certainly once the war started, a lot of people expected Zelensky to bail and just flee Ukraine. And the fact that he stayed uh, was surprising to a lot of people and does seem to have done good things for Ukraine. I think this may be an example of especially Western sources uh, being too inclined to treat, uh, sort of draw too many lessons from the most recent war that the West was involved in. So watching the complete collapse of 
uh, the Afghanistan government during to the Taliban last year, they kind of assumed that the next government that the U.S. was aligned with would cla collapse equally as quickly. But uh, regardless, uh, Zelensky has not fled and has seemed to be a, a firm leader during this time. In the run-up to the war, I feel like Zelensky was trying. He was, I, I think he was in a very difficult position because Russia started making a series of demands before the war started in, in late last year and early this year. And I think if, I think first of all that uh, the United States and the EU were not interested in entertaining the Russian demands. And so there was not a lot of wiggle room for Zelensky to announce that he would entertain them. And second of all, uh, a lot of Ukrainian nationalists would have been completely unwilling to accept them in the Russian terms anyways. This is stuff like Ukraine has never recognized the annexation of Crimea. Um, and there are terms about what Russia wanted at the time to happen in the separatist regions where they would be given more local autonomy that Ukraine wasn't willing to accept. Um, but I think in the run up to the war, Zelensky was sort of was was trying pretty hard to send signals that he was open to, to discussion. He kind of went back and forth on things, but he would he would come out and say, maybe we don't need to join NATO. Um, maybe this I think he I think at one point shortly before the war happened, he said NATO is a dream we've had, but maybe it will always just be be just a dream. But I don't think he was ever able to take a clear enough action that would have been able to settle the issue one way or the other. But certainly once the war has started, he has been a uh, effective leader as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. And adding on to your point, um, international diplomacy in the past couple of years really affected the dynamics of this war from happening. And do you believe that there were significant rifts during negotiations among Ukraine, Russia, the United States, and other countries? So, yeah, so Russia's uh, key demands here, well, so there's something called the Minsk Agreement that was the sort of deal that got peace back in a temporary peace in 2015 when the sort of the, the then war settled into kind of a low-grade conflict. And at least according to Russia's interpretation of the Minsk Agreement, I think the interpretation is a little bit, I think the wording might have been kind of vague, but the Russian interpretation was that Donetsk and Luhansk would get regional autonomy and that there would be so an end to back and forth shelling um, and they also wanted Ukrainian uh, recognition of Crimea, and they wanted, well, specifically in the Minsk Agreement, they wanted that the separatist regions would get a certain amount of veto power over Ukrainian uh, international relations, which would basically mean that Ukraine couldn't join NATO. So Ukraine was, was not going to accept that because that would kind of mean that Russia would get veto power over foreign policy through the separatist regions. So Russia wanted a, a guarantee that Ukraine wouldn't join NATO, um, and they wanted an end to the sort of low-grade war going on in, in the Donbass. And I think uh, looking at it, uh, the U.S.'s reaction to all of this was to say basically, well, not allowing Ukraine to join NATO is off the table. Um, in fact, the U.S. The US negotiation tactic was struck me as odd at the time because they had two messages. First of all, they said Ukraine promising not to join NATO is not on the table. Any country can join any alliance they please. So we don't, we would never tell another country that they don't have a right to join an alliance. And then the second thing they said was, we think Russia is going to attack any second now. Mm -hmm. Many citizens in Russia give various arguments for why they believe Russia is at war with Ukraine. 
And some cite the low intensity warfare in the Donbass region over the last eight years, and others claim that there is Nazi influence within the Ukrainian military hierarchy. And some have even alleged that uh, that Ukraine possesses or is attempting to acquire weapons of mass destruction. So, what is the truth behind all of these claims? Well, I think we should separate here the whether or not the claims are independently true or false and whether or not they're actually the motive for uh war for russia um, of course we can ultimately never know what is in putin's heart or the hearts of russian nationalists but based on what they've been saying for decades i think it's clear that uh concern about u.s power and nato power in eastern europe and a desire to sort of re- reassert russian strength is the pri- their primary motive for seeking this opportunity to sort of uh to draw a line here and uh and go to war with ukraine now going through the the things you mentioned specifically the low intensity warfare in the donbass region i think is definitely a factor uh in their decision making process because from a purely logistical standpoint have being in a never-ending war is never something that is very popular uh the the situation in Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine is fundamental, has been fundamentally unstable since 2014. Um, perhaps uh, originally, I, I think uh, Putin considered this a satisfactory outcome to sort of destabilize Ukraine enough that as, as long as a, a small corner of Ukraine was under Russian occupation, Ukraine was not going to join NATO. Because if Ukraine joined NATO and part of it was under occupation by Russia, that would immediately trigger uh, World War III. So, as long as Russia controlled part of Ukraine and Ukraine disputed that, uh, then Ukraine was out of NATO. And so I think that was sort of a satisfaction of that concern. But uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian military was getting armed by the West and there was you know, fighting ongoing. And so it was sort of a continual drain on Russian resources. So um, in fact, uh, without getting too much in the, into what's going on right now, I think it's fair to say that the war has not been going as well as uh, Russian leaders initially hoped it would have gone. But I think if they look at things here, they have to be thinking, well, um, if we had to do this, it's better we did it now than in five years, because if, it, if it's going this badly now, then in five years, it could have been going even worse. Uh, so I think this is one of the cases where um, a sort of information disparity on all sides make people feel like they have to act now because things are just getting worse uh, for them if, if they act later. For, as, as far as the Nazi influence goes, it is certainly true that uh, Azov, the Azov Battalion, uh, is, is a neo-Nazi organization. Um, and they have some support within Ukraine and some membership. Uh, one of their primary points of uh, places of operation was in Mariupol uh, in southern Ukraine. And so this is a city that's been slowly, slowly besieged by Russia. And so the Azov Battalion has been a big, a big force they've been fighting there. Um, I think it's also, you know, worth pointing out here, although it should be clear that uh, there are some far right forces in many countries, and that in general, uh, the political arrangements of, of countries on your borders is, is not a sufficient justification for, for invading them. However, um, I, I think a big part of the rhetoric there is is trolling the West, or at least it sort of works out that way, um, because the, the Nazis as supreme evil has been sort of central to the West's own self understanding, you know, since the end of World War II, uh, and lately in U.S. rhetoric in particular, 
Nazis have been kind of invoked recently with regards to Trump and so on. And so it feels to me like what Russia is doing is saying, look, uh, if Nazis are the ultimate bad guy, here are people who actually like run around with swastikas and stuff. So give us a break here. It is true that you know there are there are Ukrainians in the National Guard and so on, and Azov and other other groups who you know will will wave flags with swastikas. There are a couple of embarrassing pictures by you know NATO's Twitter account and so on, where they cite some International Women's Day. Here's a brave woman Ukrainian, and then someone zooms in on a patch on her on her sleeve, and it's like some neo-Nazi insignia. Uh, so there's a presence there, but um, I don't really think it's a, a central motivating factor for the Russian high command as much as a uh, convenient piece of information warfare. As for the questions about weapons of mass destruction, um, I don't know if I've seen personally evidence that convinces me that what Russians have been alleging there has been going on. Um, it is true that there were U.S. biological research labs in Ukraine, which uh, Russia has been alleging our, our biological weapons facilities. If the U.S. were going to have secret biological weapons facilities, which, you know, they could because countries investigate all sorts of things, it would seem like Ukraine would be a very strange place to put the biological weapons facilities. It's certainly possible. So Victoria Newland, whose name came up earlier, actually came up recently with respect to this because she talked about how important it was to... Uh, shut down the, biologi the biological research facilities and keep the materials out of Russian hands, which was a strange thing to say. She said it to Congress, uh, and people asked questions about it. People, and then the official U.S. sources clarified that, yes, these are biological research labs, but these used to be biological weapon facilities uh, during the Soviet Union, and now we're just sort of there helping to make sure that we dismantle the weapons programs and keep them out of dangerous hands, and we're afraid that they could be used in a false flag attack and so on. Which is to say that uh, there's a lot of weird murky information running around, but there's nothing that's been, that's been particularly convincing to me that uh, Ukraine has been plotting something sinister with respect to biological warfare. I do think that uh, a decent share of what goes on in terms of ordinary biological research has the potential to uh, go in strange directions and that Often scientists will get grants for strange things, but that's an entirely separate conversation. Mm -hmm, totally. I uh, just had a really quick question in conclusion. Um, what made you personally predict that a war was about to occur? So I made, I made sort of a formal prediction on February 21st, which was, I think, about two and a half days before the war started. And I predicted that, uh, I think the way I worded it was that it will almost certainly happen within a month probably within a week and quite plausibly within 48 hours. And about 48 hours later, the, the bombing started. So I felt pretty good about that claim in retrospect. Um, I think it is very easy when following stuff like this to make a lot of sort of informal predictions. And then if you make enough predictions, some of them turn out to be right. So I try to keep myself honest by uh, every now and then when I think I'm pretty sure about something is going to happen, I try to send out you know, an email to a couple, a couple family members saying like, here's my prediction, I'm putting it in writing to kind of hold myself honest. And there was a lot of buzz going around in certain circles about the possibility of war. Now, since I'm speaking about holding yourself honest and making quantifiable predictions, as I said, the US uh, intelligence agencies were leaking predictions about war starting any second now for, for a while. Uh, I think for, for a couple months, they were saying it could be 
within a month or it could be within a couple of weeks. And then I think they named the day of February 15th as the day they thought the war was going to start. Uh, and then that day came and went and then they were like, okay, no, but, I'll be, but it'll be soon. And so, uh, like I said, it was sort of hard to get a clear beat on what uh, the information strategy of US intelligence sources and uh, President Biden was on running around with that information. Um, but ultimately what tipped it for me was that I had been following Russian news sources and the Russian news sources for months and, and especially, you know, through February had been carrying the story that uh, it was very funny to them that the Westerners kept talking about there being a war right around the corner and they were crazy and paranoid. And then in the middle of February, the, the language shifted a little bit and they stopped making fun of the Americans for predicting a war. And they instead started talking about the ongoing shelling of the Donbass and how outrageous this was and how something had to be done. And when I saw that tone shift, which was you know a couple of days before I made my formal prediction, I said, okay, something's happening here. And then the, the, the final switch for me was when Putin formally recognized Donetsk and Luhansk as independent countries. Because at that point, he had you know, staked his credibility on, on making a change to what was going on in the Donbass. And so at that point, I felt like war was indeed inevitable. Um, and a couple, years, a couple days later, uh, the war started in earnest. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Mr. Shinpike. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Happy to be on. Shunpike, our guest for this episode, is an independent foreign relations analyst who predicted the invasion three days before it occurred. This episode was produced by Rena Shao. We get technical help from Nicole Zhang. Thanks for listening to the Buzz Politics podcast at Taft Radio.